you know, when a patient's fighting for their life, uh, they shouldn't have to worry about how to pay for their medical bills. That's the last thing, you know, that they should worry about or that they're going to lose everything that they've worked for. Mm -hmm. And nobody should have to choose between putting food on their table and affording their prescription drugs. So I know how hard this can be. So I'm passionate about making uh, sure that no Coloradoan experiences that situation. So we have to create a healthcare system that ensures that all Coloradoans can not only just survive, uh, but thrive and, and go on to live uh, really healthy lives. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yalpala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera of the state of Colorado. We discuss health equity in the state of Colorado, and we also discuss the importance of ensuring that digital health innovation serves everybody in the state. I am honored to have today on our podcast, Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Great. And I hear that this is your first podcast. That's true. This is my maiden voyage into podcasting. Well, I'm particularly honored to have you joining us. This is also our first season. So thanks so much for that. Thank you. You've had a really long career in public service here in Colorado. I mean, you've worked on many things. You've started out, as, as I understand, as a rehabilitation counselor in your career. Then you became a state representative, all the way now to becoming our lieutenant governor. Over that time, and when you look at your experiences, what has stood out to you regarding healthcare needs and challenges in our state? Well, you know, as you mentioned, I started off my career as a vocational rehabilitation counselor. And in that capacity, I worked with people that had both physical and or mental uh, illnesses uh, to try and help them become employed. So that's where I cut my teeth and that's where I got my start. And I think that's what really shaped a lot of what I became and what, who I am today. So, you know, many healthcare needs and challenges aren't unique to our state, uh, but it's really a blessing. And it's just wonderful that Coloradoans have a, dis uh, we've distinguished ourselves as leaders and pioneers in the healthcare and healthcare policy uh, arena. So, you know, throughout my career as a, as a counselor and as a legislator and with my different experiences, uh, I've seen the need for equitable and affordable access to both physical and mental health care for everyone. And so that's why I'm really excited that this year uh, we passed historic bills, uh, several this session, which focus on addressing mental health needs and uh, reducing health disparities across our state. So if I could just mention a couple of those. Of course. Um, House Bill 21-1097 establishes a behavioral health administration, and this will be a single state agency uh, that will lead, promote, and administer the state's behavioral health priorities. Uh, this was a priority of the governor's. Uh, he's uh, created the Behavioral Health Task Force uh, through an executive order uh, because we realized that our mental health system was broken and improving Coloradoans' access to behavioral health care is a priority for our administration. Okay. Uh, we probably conducted double-digit uh, listening sessions from people all across the state who either were um, consumers of mental health or family members of people that had uh, mental health issues to determine exactly what was broken, uh, what our priorities sh uh, should be, and um, how we move forward. So 
I'm really excited about the provisions in this bill that creates uh, data and information sharing legal framework. And this approach ensures that the right information is readily available for uh, people at the right time and hopefully will improve the experience for both clients and providers in the behavioral health arena. Let me ask you a question there. I mean, what did, you know, coming out of the pandemic too, behavioral health and mental health more broadly is it's an issue that we're grappling with across the country. And in Colorado, it's not different. And it looks like um, we're really kind of proactive about that issue. But maybe you could tell me a bit about what was learned on that listening tour. Like, what are some of the things that were very clear are priorities for behavioral health here in our state? Well, you know, we learned that the system works for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we heard really loud and clear was access uh, is a problem. People don't really know how to enter the system. Right. Uh, sometimes they'll enter it. It's the wrong door. They get sent to a different door. That's the wrong door. They get sent to a different door. And we really heard some gut-wrenching stories from people mm. that weren't able to access mental health services and and tragically, it uh, oftentimes ended in the person taking their life. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, that's a major, major issue we're having now. And unfortunately, it's, um, yeah, there's just a lot of work we need to do. So I'm, I'm glad that at least um, here in Colorado, um, our legislators are, are on the case there. They are. And we're, we're excited to continue the work. Uh, we called ourselves the Behavioral Health Task Force initially. Mm -hmm. And now we are the Behavioral Health Reform Group. So okay. uh, we're taking what we learned from people and trying to put that into action and public policy that will really create a better experience for people so that they can be healthy. Great. Um, so as I was getting to learn a bit about your story, I came to learn that you're a cancer survivor. Um, I am very curious to hear how your personal journey with cancer influenced how you view the importance of healthcare at an individual level, personal level, and, and what more we can do even to support people? Well, you know, I think one thing that's really important is that I've walked in the shoes of many people who, you know, have almost lost everything just because they got a really uh, horrible diagnosis. And so my personal experience has really only strengthened my ability to understand and advocate on behalf of patients uh, to fight for an accessible healthcare system and a quality healthcare system. You know, when a patient's fighting for their life, uh, they shouldn't have to worry about how to pay for their medical bills. That's the last thing, you know, that they should worry about or that they're going to lose everything that they've worked for. Mm -hmm. And nobody should have to choose between putting food on their table and affording their prescription drugs. So I know how hard this can be. So I'm passionate about making uh, sure that no Coloradoan experiences that situation. So we have to create a healthcare system that ensures that all Coloradoans can not only just survive, uh, but thrive and, and go on to live uh, really healthy lives. Yeah, I mean, that's because uh, as I learned, like when you first got your diagnosis, it seemed like you were really in a corner. I, I would love to hear more about this story because I think it's important for people to know this is like personal to you. And also, as you mentioned, you know, healthcare costs is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in our country. And particularly when you think about our low income populations, when we think about health equity, for example. I mean, this is a major issue and I don't think sometimes it gets talked about enough. So on the one hand, I'm curious about how you process that, like knowing you didn't have so much time, at least in that first diagnosis and how you work through that. And I think as you've inferred as well, the, the cost of health care, particularly when we think about our low income populations, people are going bankrupt over these issues. Like, I'm just curious to kind of hear from you on those themes. 
Well, you know, I was really lucky at the time. I did have health insurance, which was was good. Um, I was a young mom, uh, 38 years old at the time. I had two little girls that were mm. three and five. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget where the doctor sat, how he had his legs crossed, those kinds of things when he came into the hospital or to the office uh, that I was in and told me that, you know, I'd been diagnosed with breast cancer and I probably wouldn't have five years to live. So, um, you know, those those kinds of words can bring a person to their knees, mm-hmm. literally. Of course. Um, I wasn't even able to drive myself home that day, you know, hearing those words because all I wanted to do was be there to raise my children. So, it was probably one of the hardest years of my life because, you know, when I got the diagnosis, I um, I lost my job during that year because the not-for-profit I was oh, working no. for uh, had to close their doors. Um, uh, so I lost my job, which, you know, you, your insurance is usually tied to your job. To your job. So right. I sat in my garden for a couple of months and pulled weeds and, and cried and tried to figure out, you know, how I was going to raise these two daughters because I'd also, um, my marriage had uh, broken up during that time as well. Mm. So um, it was just a really stressful year for me. But you find out when you're really sick how many angels there are that come to surround you. And I remember calling my old boss back and saying, you know, I'm really in a pickle. You know, I don't know if I'm going to live. I've got these two little girls I have to raise. I need health insurance. Do you know if I could get a job again with the state agency I was working for? And he said, I've got three openings. Which one do you want? So I was able to get a job again, which meant I could have my own health insurance and raise my kids. And I had great medical care, too. I had a wonderful family. I had wonderful friends that brought me casseroles after chemotherapy and things like that. And so I was able to overcome my illness. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an experience I'll never forget. And I take that with me. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's... um yeah, I think it's just important for people to know for you as, as a leader. And I think when we, we look to our leaders, we want to feel like they understand where many of us are coming from. And I think to hear that story from you, not only to have the cancer diagnosis, the issue of not having a job, and but also the support from community. I mean, I think those are all things that um, um, are just amazing. And, and I'm just uh, so happy that uh, you're able to get through that. Well, um, thanks. And, you know, if I could add, um, you know, I worked at healthcare policy and financing for a while. Um, as the manager of the customer service section. So we took phone calls all the time from people who, you know, were sick, um, didn't have insurance, those kinds of things. And I learned at the time a lot about inequities in the healthcare system. And then when I went to Susan G. Komen, Colorado, to be the CEO there, I learned also how many more women who are African-American or Hispanic or Latina die from you know, breast cancer because they don't get an early diagnosis. They don't have the right treatment. And, um, you know, back to healthcare policy and financing, you know, a lot of people would call and say, you know, I've, I think I've got breast cancer, but, you know, I'm, I'm not documented, for example. Right. And so what can, if I apply for Medicaid, can I, you know, and they weren't allowed to apply for Medicaid services. So the only service they could get was an emergency service. So they would, I had to tell them oftentimes you know, you can have a mastectomy, but that's really all you can have. But that's have. all you could have. Okay. And what an inequity that was, you know, in our system. And so throughout my career, I've learned a lot about inequity, and it's really important to fight for everybody in Colorado that we all have access to equitable, high-quality, affordable treatment. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Thank you so much for that. So 
Um, as I spent some time getting to know some of your priority initiatives, um, I learned that you have launched an office of saving people money in healthcare. And as far as I know, I've never heard of such an office in another state. Yeah, the name of the office is the Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare. So the people is the really important part. The people is the important part. Mm -hmm. Very good. Tell me more about how you landed on that as a signature initiative and priority for your administration. Well, you know, um, the number one thing that the governor and I heard when we campaigned across Colorado on the campaign trail was that Coloradoans' cost of healthcare was way too high and that a lot of people couldn't afford it. So when the governor and I sat down to establish our priorities, one of the things that we were both really passionate about was making sure that people could have access to high-quality, affordable health care. I've worked in state government most of my life, and oftentimes people would create departments and programs and things like that that the general public would have no idea what that program was really all about. Right. So we gave it the name, the Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare, because we wanted people to know exactly and clearly what we were all about. Okay. And so there's really no acronym for it. Right. Um, if any of the li listeners can come up with an acronym, they you know, should win a prize. But <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't cut it down to just a bunch of letters. Um, so, you know, it's a uh, it's really a passion for both the governor and I. And um, one of the things that we talked about initially, too, was that all roads lead to health. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just you going to the doctor and getting a prescription. You know, it's, it's things like, you know, if you look at every department uh, in the governor's cabinet from agriculture all the way up through veterans and military affairs, every single department plays some role in helping people be healthy. Okay. Agriculture, of you know, course. healthy food, um, education is really important. Housing is really important. Mm -hmm. All roads lead to health is sort of the mantra that the governor and I have um, adopted. Right. And so we have a health cabinet right now that has all those players in it. Okay. Um, because we, we know that everybody plays a role in making Coloradoans healthy. And really what it what I'm hearing you say is is really what you and the governor are working on is looking at the broader health and wellness of people, right? So it's it's not just about if someone's sick, where can they go to get care, but how do we comprehensively think about wellness, whether it's behavioral health legislation, as you mentioned, or saving people money, which links to access. Um, and saving people money seems like something that everybody could agree on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there's so many things socially that influence your health. Of course. You know, if you don't have a place to live, you don't have a refrigerator to put that medicine in that needs to be refrigerated, you know, it's not going to do you any good. You know, if you lose your prescription somewhere along the line, you know, and you can't take it, then you're not going to be healthy. So there's so many influences uh, that impact our health. And those are the kinds of things that the governor and I are, are trying to look at as well. Great. I mean, clearly that's a, that's a uh, ambitious goal. It's a large objective. So how do you, how do you approach something like that? Like where are some of your priority initiatives or what are some of the tactics that you're thinking about with such a, I mean, big topic? Like how do you unpack that and think about some actionable areas where you can actually start to see those savings? Well, one of the things is to have a really robust cabinet. Of, so we have the directors from uh, a variety of different departments, not just your standard ones that you'd think about. Okay. Not just healthcare policy and financing, not just Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, not just health and human services. Right. Um, we have people in our health cabinet from Department of Corrections, for example, because okay. they provide a lot of mental health services, sadly. 
Uh, we have people in our cabinet that are from the Department of Regulatory Agencies because they license all the healthcare providers. We have people in our department or in our cabinet from DOLA, which is the Department of Local Affairs, because they do a lot of housing work. So we've got all hands on deck trying to look at all these things that impact people's health okay. and what kinds of um, legislation can we come up with? What kinds of goals should we work on to make sure that people um, are healthy and that all these things that impact your health are addressed. Okay, great. Where do you see the biggest opportunity in that? Is there one area that stands out to you as, as a kind of fulcrum for making this shift? Well, you know, one of the things we heard from uh, people, especially in the mountain communities, was, uh, you know, that they couldn't afford health insurance premiums. And, you know, it's, it's important that you have health insurance. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we've worked on really uh, with real diligence is lowering the cost of health care premiums. Okay. And um, last year we did a lot of that um, and, and lowered health care premiums by about 20% across the state. Uh, this year we did the same thing with um, the Colorado Option, which was passed recently, okay. which will provide a really robust benefit package and also continue to lower health care costs. Uh, the other thing that we found out is that people really can't afford their prescription medication. Mm-hmm. I learned that years ago when I worked at Healthcare Policy and Financing. Uh, people would call in and say, you know, I'm just going to have to cut my pills in half because I can't afford, you know, to fill my prescription again. Right. And uh, we learned that one in three people uh, cut their um, their pills in half. So we've also done some work to try and address the uh, rising cost of prescription drugs because if you can't take a prescription and you need it and to be healthy, it. right? It, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So. Our state, you know, Colorado, has been moving closer and closer to 70% of people at least having one dose of the COVID vaccine. But we still do have significant equity challenges in our state, like we're seeing across the country. How has the COVID-19 pandemic influenced your view on health equity and our broader healthcare context, given these different initiatives that you've described? Well, you know, we've been working really hard uh, to distribute and administer the COVID-19 vaccine around our state. And I'm really hopeful uh, for our future that we will get to uh, herd immunity. So we're doing everything we can to ensure that doses are going into the arms and and not sitting on shelves. Some of those things that we have done is that we have um, done little pop-up clinics in different communities. We know people feel more comfortable maybe going to their local church or that um facility in their neighborhood where they feel really comfortable. They know the people, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. We also know that people don't often have transportation uh, to get to some of these clinics. We've learned from people who are visually impaired that drive-up clinics really didn't do them much good because Mm -hmm. they don't don't drive and they couldn't take Uber at the time. Um, So we've learned a lot from listening to people and we've tried to meet people where they are in their communities. Uh, You mentioned the word equity, and um, I learned a lot about some of the fears that people from marginalized communities have about vaccinations and things like that because of some of the experimentation that's been done on people in the past, Mm -hmm. sadly, and they have a fear of the medical community. So, you know, I learned learned a lot about uh, where some of these fears have come from and where some of this hesitancy to get a vaccine has come from. But... uh, we're doing a lot, but I know we can do better uh, reaching our most vulnerable still, and we're continuing to work on that. So we just really hope that we can encourage everybody that's eligible to get a vaccine, that they get one so that we can end this pandemic soon. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like we've been doing a lot of work on COVID response in our state. And one of the things we did is we've run two different statewide surveys looking at barriers to care um, around vaccine access and also hesitancy. And what we came to learn, I think, is something you you mentioned, which is that for a lot of people in our state, hesitancy actually isn't the issue, but it's it's about access, like simple things that may seem simple to some people um, may be difficult for others because of their life circumstances. And so um, I think that the issue of access clearly continues to be one. We're talking more about hesitancy and what that looks like for certain populations. But I'm really curious about, as a, as, as a leader in our state, the evolution of your thinking about how to tackle this pandemic. I mean, it's it's felt like a much longer period of time than it's actually been. But when you think about when this first came to your desk and you and the governor were like, how do we tackle this to now? Maybe you can share with us some of the evolution of thinking, just like as you as a leader have been trying to respond to this pandemic with the governor and, and the other leaders in our state. Well, you know, the, I'll never forget the night that I received the phone call that we had our first case of COVID-19, you know, in the state. And I'll never forget the day that I went down to Colorado Springs because we had experienced the first death of someone from COVID-19. And so we began to realize early on just how contagious and how deadly this was. Um, we've been really lucky in the state of Colorado that we have an excellent team mm -hmm. um, because there was no playbook for this right. pandemic, you know, and and we just had to um, use the best science and the best data that we had uh, to try and figure out how to address it. We had no um, vaccine at the time. So, you know, the, the tools that we had in our toolbox were to wear masks and wash hands and social distance and, mm -hmm. you know, stay in your home. And, you know, we had to unfortunately close some businesses down. And, you know, we found out very quickly that, every action created another problem. So if you close businesses down, you close the economy down, maybe you save some lives because people aren't uh, catching the virus. Mm -hmm. But then you're also creating economic problems and you're creating mental health issues because people are isolated and they can't see their families and things like that. So one of the best things that ever happened was that science uh, created a vaccine uh, that could help end this, this pandemic because those were the tools we had in the toolbox at the time. Right. And now we have this wonder, these wonderful vaccines available to us that are 95% effective and actually can uh, help us end this pandemic. So we've learned a lot, but thank goodness we had science in, in our corner too to create the tools that we need to really end the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think one thing I've learned um, as a public health practitioner is also in public health communications through this pandemic, we've learned a lot. And I think one of the things we've had to do is innovate in that space. But I think one thing we've learned and we've observed is that the trusted messenger is the most important vehicle of communications, whoever that may be. Um, and so for different people, they have different trusted messengers, whether it's our vulnerable populations or rural populations. And I think that uh, we're learning a lot about that and, and trying to meet everybody where they are, because ultimately... You know, we want to get this pandemic under control and people can move on with their lives. Exactly. And, you know, I, I've heard over and over again that it's really important when someone goes to see a provider or even gets a vaccination or anything 
that when they look up, they see people that look like them. Mm-hmm. And that's really important that we look at healthcare through a lens of making sure that we're culturally responsive to people and that we have providers that reflect uh, the community. So we have a lot of work yet to do in terms of workforce uh, to make sure that we have um, healthcare providers that can be uh, responsive to the, the needs of their communities. Great. So when thinking about health equity, um, one thing that I've observed and that I've been speaking to, to our guests about is that health equity, the way the term is typically used, tends to infer racial disparities in health. But when we really think about health equity, and at least in, in the way I think about the definition, it's about how we support everybody, no matter who they are, to achieve their full health and wellness potential, you know, based on their goals, right? And so... I think often we're not talking enough about our rural populations and gender and so many other things that also fall under the umbrella of health equity. So here in Colorado, we have both urban populations. We have, you know, a very robust rural population. Maybe you can talk to me about how you think about health equity in that context of our urban-rural divide. Well, you know, when uh, the pandemic hit, one of the things that we were most proud about was our work in telehealth. And I think that we saw like a 600% increase in telehealth visits for behavioral health, for example. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of the work that I do in the lieutenant governor's office is I have the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs in my office. And I learned very quickly that the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute Indian tribes have no access to broadband. Mm -hmm. So... There you go. There's a health inequity right there. They, they couldn't access uh, telehealth like people in the urban um, areas could. Right. I've also learned from traveling around the state that oftentimes there's not even a psychologist in the county that uh, they live in. Mm-hmm. And so it's really difficult to access behavioral health when you don't have health care providers uh, in your community. And so we know that um, there's a lot of work to do between the urban and and rural uh, communities uh, to make sure that we do have equity. And it, it is a priority in my office as, uh, as we work to build on that. And uh, it's really important that we collaborate and, and think creatively about it, especially when it comes to the social influences of health or determinants of health that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Because um, even transportation, for example, is difficult in, in rural areas. There, right. are, there are people in the urban areas that if they need to go to a doctor, they can hop on a bus and, and get to their doctor's office. But is not quite so easy uh, in rural areas. And I, I've been really lucky to have a chief of staff in my office who comes from rural Colorado. And mm-hmm. so um, she's always been really instrumental in making me always have that in the front of my mind that it, healthcare isn't just about the urban areas. And and one of the things that um, the Office of eHealth Innovation has worked really hard on is uh, to make sure that um, Rural areas are connected with health information exchanges. And okay. what that means uh, to the layperson is that if you're from, say, Alamosa, Colorado, mm-hmm. and you come to Denver and you are treated for a strep throat, all that information should be put into a system that your doctor in Alamosa can look at and say, hey, I saw that you were treated for a strep throat or you had this lab test or whatever, exactly. so I don't have to repeat it. So if we can get these health information exchanges created throughout the entire state, that will help us in terms of saving people money on healthcare as well. Okay, very good. So to close out, I ask all my guests this question. Why are you, as our lieutenant governor, and now I can just term you our LG, in on health equity? Well, 
I guess it's a pretty simple answer is that it's because it's really important. Governor Polis and I have worked really hard to build and sustain a Colorado for all. Uh, that's been one of our slogans that we want a Colorado for all. And so that means that regardless of your location, you know, where you live, what your income level is, what your race is, your gender, your ethnicity, your age, uh, if you have a disability or not, because disability has always been really important to me to work in that community to make sure they have access, your veteran status, your sexual orientation, that you have reliable access to affordable and high quality care. So that's why I'm on your podcast today for my first time. And uh, I just want people to know that uh, the governor and I are committed and we will continue to work on equity issues. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today and share your important insights and also your personal story. So once again, thanks so much to Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera for joining us today. And thank you for having me. It's been it's been really fun. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host, KP, signing off.